Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Welcome. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill, and just want to welcome you today uh, as we gather for worship. Uh, excited for this beautiful, warm September day. So uh, I know everybody's fanning. It's okay. It's also okay to wear shorts to church. So I'm just going to give you that freedom. I know we beat in a building that's like 150 years old. You can wear shorts in here. So feel free for next time. Uh, but glad that you're here this morning. Want to make you guys feel welcome, especially if you're new. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. As Matt mentioned at the beginning of the service, you'll see a connection card and you'll see it's a black card. Flip that over. And there's a QR code that you can scan on that card. Um, if you don't see one in your seat, we have more in the back. Just be sure to grab one on the way out. Uh, scan that QR code. If you're a guest with us, just uh, click on new guest once you scan that uh, QR code or guest, guest connection and uh, fill that out. We'll, we'll uh, give us some information about you. We'll follow up uh, with you uh, this week. Um, also, take that card, go to the back table. Joe is going to be back there after the service, and he'd love to talk with you, get to know you, and as our gift to you for being here, we want to give you a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery. This is a thanks for being here. Um, also, we'll follow up this uh, week via email uh, with a list of charities. Um, respond to that email. Let us know what you want, you want us to make a donation to, and we'll do that as a thank you for you being here this morning. Uh, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. And these are things we talk about a lot. These are the things that really kind of define who we are as a people. And so we believe in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, which is that we were once separated from God because of our sinful choices and actions and have now been made right with God through the work of Jesus for anybody who will love, who will trust Jesus, anybody who will trust him as Lord and Savior and so if you've not done that, we'd love to talk with you about how to do that today. And we're actually going to unpack that today in our, in our message. Secondly, as community, God created us for relationship with one another. And so because we are in relationship with each other as the church, with this new hope in Jesus, uh, we can encourage each other and bless one another in the way that Jesus has blessed us. And then thirdly is mission. We join God in his mission to make all things new. We do this through loving and serving and blessing our neighbors but also through communicating and sharing the gospel with other people that they might know who Jesus is. Now, just a few announcements before we jump in today. Uh, first is right after the service, we are having a community group launch lunch. And so this is going to be outside. We're going to share lunch with you guys. And this is our, our kickoff for the year for community groups. Community groups are groups of 8 to 12 adults who get together every week to encourage each other to follow Jesus by studying his word, by loving and caring for each other as, as a people, and then also through um, uh, loving and serving our neighbors in tangible ways. And so if you've not been a part of a community group, this is a great time to jump in. This is where the life of City on a Hill happens, is when you get in friendships and relationships with people. I see a couple heads nodding. So if you're new, grab somebody who looks like they've been here a while and ask them about their experience. They'd love to share how community groups have been formative. So that's going to be after the service. Um, everyone is invited because we're launching all new groups this fall. Um, so come outside, grab lunch. Even if you just want some lunch, just come anyway. It's fine. We'll, we, won't, we won't judge you for that. Um, that's going to be outside after the service. Secondly is there's a way we can serve this week through our partner uh, over at High Park Department for Children's and Families. We want to bless foster families this school year. So we're doing a back-to-school bash this next Saturday, the 16th. I would love for you guys to come serve and help with that. And then lastly is our church retreat. We have a retreat coming up at, toward the end of October 
uh, with three other congregations. We're going up to New Hampshire, beautiful time of the year being in New Hampshire, and we're going to be hearing teaching that weekend from Rebecca McLaughlin, who's an incredible author and speaker, and we're really excited for that. It's a great time to get away and also just a great way to get to know others. So you can sign up for all of those, get more information for all of those by just scanning that QR code you see on the screen. You can also get there by that card that's in your seat uh, and just clicking on events. All right, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to jump into the text this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace to us, and I thank you for your spirit, which, as we just sung about a few minutes ago, uh, gives us life, uh, Lord, and it is bringing and building your kingdom and pointing back to you, Jesus. And so this morning, um, as we receive your word, as I teach, let us receive this uh, through the power of your spirit. God, let your words Flow through me, Lord, let them not be my own words, but let them be yours that you use to shape us through the work of the Spirit to point our hope back to Jesus. And so, God, thank you for your grace, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, this morning, we are continuing a series in Acts about the church. We are not going to be going through the entire book of Acts over the next few weeks, but we're going to try to get an understanding of what the church is over the next few weeks. So if you're new to church or you're new to City in a Hill, this is a great time to be here because you're sort of getting kind of a, a very quick crash course on who we are. And so last week, we looked at the idea of being a praying church, why it is important that we pray. And, and these things that we are talking about over the next few weeks, it's really great if you're new, but also if you've been here a while, it's a great refresher. Or if you've been to church before, it's a good reminder of why we do what we do because it's easy for us to focus on being something other than what Jesus wants us to be. It's easy to think of the church as a social club or think of the church as a, as a, as a service organization, but the church really is a people who are loved by Jesus, believe they're loved by Jesus, and then spread that love to other people. We, we, we share that together. So we are called, firstly, as we looked at last week, to be a praying church. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has ascended, and he told the people to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come who will descend and will give them wisdom and keep, keep pointing them back to Jesus and helping them continue his mission. And as they waited, they prayed. They prayed and waited for the coming of the Spirit. And it's as we pray that the Spirit works in us and the Spirit works to unite us together, to bring us together, uh, to help us come, come around the, a common identity and, 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 uh, and vision. The Spirit also helps us through prayer understand God's Word, that we can understand the Bible as we pray. We understand God's will. We try to discern it together. And also the Spirit empowers us to do what God has called us to do. So last week, I challenged you to pray for nine minutes a day, just nine minutes, three minutes for yourself, that you would be overwhelmed by the love of God, another three minutes for the church, that God would work in us in a mighty way, and also that God, that God would work in our city, that he would give us favor with our friends and neighbors. And so don't stop. Keep that up. Keep, keep praying uh, this week. Take those nine minutes and pray each day. But the second way that I want to talk about this morning that we want City on a Hill to be described as is we want to be a gospel-centered church. We want to be a church that is centered on the gospel. Now, what exactly does that mean? If you've been here a while, you hear us use the word gospel a lot. Uh, we use the gospel every week when we talk about our values. I mention the gospel every week. I talk about how the gospel is our only hope. We talk about the gospel a lot. So if you're new here or you've maybe just been here for a while, like, what does that word mean? Uh, it literally means good news. It simply means good news. And we believe that there is news that is so good, news that is so beautiful, news that is so true, it is worth centering your entire life on. It is when, it's worth centering everything that the church does and speaks about and teaches and embodies on this good 
news. This is the good news for City on a Hill. This is the good news, we believe, for every man, woman, and child. This is the good news. This the same good news that the early church believed in. In Acts chapter 2, as we look at the beginning of this, there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes finally after a season of prayer, and it creates this joy and this fervor, this display through people speaking in languages that they didn't naturally speak. We see that over 17 languages seem to have been spoken, and we're going to come back to that in a few weeks, and that's a big thing to hop right over. We're going to come back to that, I promise. But this is really compelling. You see this powerful outpouring of the Spirit And people are, just like you and I, are watching this and thinking, what in the world is going on? What's happening? This feels like like a trip on the orange line, like taking the entire thing, you're going to see some wild stuff. That's what this feels like. What exactly is going on here? I I think it would be kind of like this. In 2004, the Red Sox broke what was known as the curse of the Bambino. When they traded away Babe Ruth, okay? And for 86 years, we suffered We lost games in the worst way possible. Bill Buckner, a golden glove, first baseman lets a ball go between his legs to lose to the Mets. We lost in the worst ways possible. But in 2004, we came back from down three games to nine, beat the Yankees in the ALCS. We won the World Series in a sweep against the St. Louis Cardinals, and the city was ready to celebrate. Everybody's ready to go. And so it's estimated that three million people showed up to the parade. That's like half the state of Massachusetts showed up to the parade. There's duck boats and all kinds of stuff. We're having fun. Now imagine that you're visiting from Siberia and you've never heard of baseball. Like why why do these people hit this leather ball stitched together with a piece of wood? Like you don't understand it. And much less, why are 3 million people going nuts about it? And so you get off the plane, you head down to the common, you see this scene you got to know what's going on. That's a little bit like what's happening here with the people in Jerusalem. They see the scene. They're completely perplexed by it. And down in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And their only explanation was, verse 13, Others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. That's a fancy way to say they are all drunk. Because this is how drunk people act. And so Peter, the apostle, he grabs on to this opportunity as as an opportunity to tell these people what the early church was really about. What was this good news? And he wants to show them that this is evidence of the good news to come, this outpouring of the Spirit. The, The gospel doesn't present itself as a myth that you can just sort of take or leave, but it presents itself as good news that we need. Peter says, these men are not drunk. It's, three, it's nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour. And so as we look at this good news, Peter's sermon is going to answer the question, what does this mean? And for us, what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? So four ideas we're going to look at this morning is, is content, challenge, change, and culture. Content, challenge, change, and culture. Firstly, that the content of the gospel is essential. The gospel is a story. The gospel is news, but it can only be good news if it's true news. It can only be good news if it's, if it's a true story. It's like if you get an email and it says that Google is giving away free houses, you're skeptical immediately, and then you go and you look at the email address and it's actually it's not Google. Even the Bible says that if these things did not happen, 
That's a big claim. If these things didn't happen, if Jesus didn't do what he said he did, then we're, we're fools. It doesn't present itself as a myth that you can take or leave, but as a historical fact that changes everything or changes nothing. If Jesus Christ lived and he died and he rose again, it changes everything for everyone. But if it didn't happen, if these things are not good news, then there's no hope. It changes everything or it changes nothing. Peter explains how what they're seeing is evidence of this good news, and he predicts this in, uh, takes this from the prediction of the prophet Joel in verse 16, who uttered the words, and in the last days as shall be God, as shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy that there's going to be this outpouring of the spirit in such a way that other people see it, and that all people are invited into it. Now, this happens, it says, through great signs and wonders, that your young men shall see visions, and your old uh, men shall dream dreams, and even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. Now, this is important, because if you know the Old Testament, only a few people actually had the Holy Spirit. Only a few people were called by God as prophets to, get, to communicate to God's people. And here we see it being poured out on all people. And this helps us as we understand the gospel. The gospel helps us understand why this is important because this has everything to do with Jesus. The first part of the gospel is that Jesus was the promised king. Do I need to change microphones? Where's that handheld microphone? Let's try that again. That's a little better. How about that? Do I need to go repeat like the last four minutes? Are we good? Everybody got the gist? Okay. All right. Then we're good. Yeah, yeah. Give us a give us a synopsis. Uh, pouring out of the Spirit, only a certain few people could receive it. Now here, everyone is receiving it. All who would believe. And so this is important for us to understand that if we get the gospel, we know why this is important. And it really can, you can break the gospel down into three parts. Number one is that Jesus was the promised Savior King. He's a promised King that was coming. And there's only one who has the authority to pour out the Spirit in this way. And in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, that he's not just any other person, he's not any other prophet, he's not any other teacher, he's not just a way of life, he is the way to life. He is this promised king attested by God, and we see that he's attested by God by all the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You saw what Jesus did, and now he is doing even more through pouring out the Spirit on his people. So the last days that are described in verse 17 are when the king comes. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And, and he comes pouring out these gifts of his spirit that are meant to bring, bring great joy to people, that are meant to bring freedom to those who feel captive, that's meant to bring new hope to those who have not. And he's trying to get his Jewish hearers to understand what he's saying. He wants them to see that this has been God's plan all along. That this has been God's plan the entire way, that hundreds of years worth of prophecy is all pointed to Jesus, and he doubles down again in verse 25. 
He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He has this hope of a Lord and a King that's going to invite him in in such a way that he would always be with him, that he wouldn't let him face death, that he would make him glad and lead him to life. And what Peter is saying is Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He's the the King you've been waiting for. He's the Messiah you've been waiting for. He's the, the healer you've been waiting for. He's the forgiver that you have been waiting for. And even though they've been waiting hundreds and thousands of years for him to come, he's right in front of them and they missed it because they've become so familiar with the law, so familiar with churchy stuff, they missed it. The New York Times uh, wrote this article about why we always seem to miss things that are right in front of us. Has anybody ever like lost their glasses or the remote control or your cell phone and it's like in your pocket or it's right in front of you, you're wearing your glasses on your head? Anybody else? I see Cora, thank you for being honest. It happens to all of us. And, they, and the reason that what they call this is they call it change blindness, is that when we become so used to something and things are not really changing around us, we get blind to the things that become common to us. And so they did, a, they did a, uh, an experiment, and they did an experiment where someone was talking to a stranger, and as a bus went by, they traded that person out for a different, similar-looking stranger, and it took the person four minutes to realize they were talking to a different person, someone standing right in front of them. We can, because we can only take in so much information, and we focus on what we think is important, and we begin to take other things for granted, and we all want what is promised here in Acts 2. We all want to see God work in a powerful way. We all want the nearness of God. We want the, the eternal life that God promises. We want the, the, the fact that He will lead us to life. We want all of those things, but we begin to look for them in places other than God intended because we become so familiarized with the church and with the Word. And what he's trying to help them understand is that you've missed that Jesus is the only one as a sovereign king who can give you those things. So Jesus is the king. That's the first part of the gospel. The second part is that the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus and that that is the only way to pay for our sin. And you you have to understand why Jesus came to understand why we needed a savior, why we needed a messiah. And David's words, I'm going to look at these again, tell us why. Because if you look at Psalm 16 and you look at Psalm 18, where these verses come from, it seems like David's talking about himself. He longs to have these things. He longs to have eternal life. He longs to be with God forever and to to be glad and to be joyful. But Peter helps us understand he's not ultimately talking about himself. Because if you look at verse 29... Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. I know where he's buried. You can go look at it. He's dead. He didn't experience the things that we see here. So how can David hope in these things that he seemingly never receives? He dies just like everybody else. Death is undefeated. 
There's, it's a one-to-one proportion of those who live and those who die. And the reason is, is if you look all the way back at Genesis, which we covered over the last year, in the very beginning, our first, the first people, Adam and Eve, chose to go their own way, to, to disobey God, to try to be God over their own life, and then ended up forfeiting life with Him. And that every person who's ever lived just ends up repeating the same cycle, because every time we choose to do what we want to do, instead of obeying God and His Word... We show that we're separated from a good and holy God. And so David's longing is only possible if someone bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Because we, we can't be right with a good and holy God by just doing more, by trying to, trying to add more. It's like, it's like trying to fill in the Grand Canyon by the shovel load. You'll never do it. You can't save yourself by outworking all the bad or following all the rules. And we, we do this. We try to earn it. We try to follow all the right rules, whether they're religious rules or our own rules, because we know something in us is telling us that we're not right. But the question is, is can you do enough? Can you shovel enough shovel loads to fill the Grand Canyon? Can you be as holy as God is holy? And so how could David hope in these words? The only way he could is if he hoped in one who could come and do what he could not. He had to hope in one who could make these promises true. And so thirdly, the gospel is Jesus' defeat of sin, evil, and death. On the cross, Jesus paid for sin once and for all. He defeated evil with a promise that it would be no more, and he overcame death. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is the first fruit of the new creation, meaning that those who trust in him will experience the same new life that he experienced. And this is why so many of the songs that we sing talk about the fact that he was not abandoned, that he was not corrupted, that death could not hold him. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If you listen to a lot of the songs we sing, there's kind of a a narrative in the song. It talks about God's holiness and our sinfulness and the need for Jesus. And so a lot of the ones, especially that we sing around Easter, man, we get to that part about Jesus' death, and then we boom and echo when it comes to the resurrection because Jesus rose again. And so we look at verse 30 and we ask the question, then how is this applied to us? It says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. He raised him up, and then we see in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, Jesus has risen again as this king who can pour out forgiveness, who can pour out the work of the Spirit, because he's the only one who has the authority to do so. Our Savior King who died and rose again. So if you want to sum up the gospel in one sentence, here it is, the content of the gospel. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God accomplished salvation, rescuing us from judgment of sin to be with him forever to enjoy new life with him in his kingdom. But it's not good news unless it's true news. How do we know this is true? Look at the end of verse 32. And of that, we all are witnesses. 
Peter is writing this as someone who saw Jesus die and yet raise again. Over 500 eyewitness accounts to the truthfulness of the gospel. Not a myth, not a feel-good story, but eyewitness accounts to the best news ever. And so to be a gospel-centered church means believing in the content of the gospel. That everything we do, everything we teach, all comes back to Jesus. And my guarantee to you is every single week, it's going to come back to Jesus. I don't care from what part of the scripture we're teaching, it's going to come back to Jesus because he is our only hope. Now, I spent most of our time on that first part, um, and the rest of it flows from here. So, so the, the content of the gospel allows the challenge of the gospel to be embraced. A gospel-centered church embraces the challenge. The gospel is good news, but it's good news that challenges you. Now, there are at least 17 different cultures represented here in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, about what it means to be a multicultural church. It would have been easy for Peter to, to think, man, not everybody here is Jewish. Let's just try to tailor the message to make it less offensive, to make it less weighty, to be less in your face. He, he could have tried to downplay the hard stuff, but Peter, if you know anything about Peter, a bit of a, he, he's a bit of a hothead. He'll say what he means. He goes right at him. Look at verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it. Verse 36, he doubles down again and says, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He was not trying to just soften the message of the gospel. He didn't want to take away the offense of the gospel. And I'm not trying, saying that we just need to try to shame people or we need to try to go out of our way to make people mad. But we need to understand that the gospel, because it's a message of salvation, challenges. It confronts us. Because the message of the gospel says you can't stay the same. You have to change. You can come as you are, but God is going to change you and shape you. And so the gospel challenges you. It confronts you in two ways. Number one is it shows you as you are. The gospel challenges your traditions. It challenges your culture. It challenges what you value, what you spend your time on, the, the type of life you choose to live. And so Jesus, this is the reason he says in the Gospels, deny yourself. You have to deny yourself to follow Jesus. There are things you're going to have to lay down in order to follow Jesus. Because every single person has something that offends God. There's something in everyone's life that is less than God's good design. So it shows you as you are, but secondly, it shows you as you are before God. So it shows the gap between you and God. When you look at the gospel, the flip side of this is you see the beauty of Jesus. You see the perfection of Jesus. You see the exaltation and the glory of Jesus, and then you see your sin in light of it. And it should leave you with the question, how can I be made right with him? If my sins and, and my guilt are not removed, I'm going to face death. I'm going to be separated from him. But here's why you can embrace that challenge. This is why you can embrace this. It's because that challenge and that confrontation shows you the only place you can be saved. Verse 36 describes him as the Lord and the Christ. And then verse 21 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the intention of the king who came to die for you, to save you, 
to rescue you, to challenge you and confront you that every other way leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. It's an invitation to be saved. And so when when we're challenged in these areas of our lives, we can surrender to Jesus with those things. Once you become a Christian, there's there's a, a moment where you have to say, Lord, I trust you and I believe in you. I give my life to you. But as you're a Christian, what begins to happen is over time, God shapes you and changes you. And he does this through challenging you. I mean, there's not a year that goes by that I don't read the Bible and I read something and go, I don't really like that. Uh, I don't really know that I want to believe that. I don't really know that I want to submit to that. But just like when you get a splinter in your finger and you have to go show someone and they have to take the knife or the needle out and slowly work that splinter out, you realize that they're helping you, not hurting you. In the same way, when we bring these desires to Jesus, we can say, Jesus, I have this desire, but I trust you because you're better. You promised you'd satisfy my soul. God, God, I know these things that I want to do or think contradict your word, but ultimately I know that they lead to death and you lead me to life, so I want to surrender to you. And so here's, here's how you embrace that. Here's how you embrace the challenge. Verse 37, the hearers, it says they heard this, and they were cut to the heart. What, what does it mean for, for the message of the gospel to cut you to the heart? It means that this becomes deeply personal. When we sin, we like to think of this, we like to think of sin like a speeding ticket. Like no one ever really deserved a speeding ticket, right? Like you're, I, I, got, I got a few in the last couple of years. I'm on vacation listening to Hamilton, cruise control on, you know, and you know, it's easy to do. But we think of it like a speeding ticket because it's only wrong because we got caught. Like we got, we got busted. And we try to justify, like, I wasn't really driving that fast. I didn't see the sign. Again, I was listening to Hamilton. That was a speed trap. We try to justify our sin just like we justify a speeding ticket. But sin is more like taking your dad's wallet and, and taking his credit card and you run up a huge credit card bill. And the bill comes in the mail, and your dad opens it, and he looks at you, he looks at the bill, and he looks at you again. And it's not just that you broke a rule, you broke your father's trust. It's not that you just broke his trust, you broke his heart, because the one who's provided everything for you, you stole from. That's exactly what it's like when we sin against a holy God. A God who created us, a God who loves us, a God who promised to be enough for us. And when we try to take that life into our own hands, we break his heart. Have you been cut to the heart? When you're cut to the heart, you, you see that there's no making this up. It melts you. It makes you want to change. And maybe for the, for the first time this morning, you're experiencing that. You see the challenge of the gospel. You've heard the message of the gospel, and you're like, I want to change. The third thing is, is we've got to figure out what to do. Verse 37 continues on, they say to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? You're called to change. The third idea is that gospel change is expected. And Peter makes it plain. I had this old black seminary professor, he'd say, he'd say make it plain, preacher. So I'm gonna, he, he makes it plain. I'm going to try to make it plain. Peter says in verse 30, 38, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is that plain. And it's that simple. The way to change is to repent, which means to turn from your sin and to turn towards Jesus. Again, there's an initial moment where you do that, where you trust Jesus. 
But the ongoing life of a Christian is each day we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus, trusting that he's enough. And what happens when you initially repent and trust Jesus is he forgives your sins. He takes away your guilt. He takes away your shame because he bore them on a cross and he paid for them. That you owe them no more. And then in response to that forgiveness, we were baptized. Baptism is a representation of going under the water, like dying with Jesus, your sins are dead, and then you're raised again to new life. And what you're saying in that moment is, I want to follow Jesus for all of my life in every area of life. And if you've not been baptized, if you've not taken the steps of being baptized, I want to invite you to do so. We're going to do that in a couple of weeks. I'd love for you to take that step. So we repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and we see that God begins to change us. Verse 38, we see that the Spirit's given to us to help us know how to follow Jesus. And, And He's committed to changing us completely. Philippians 1, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That the God who saves you is the God who sustains you. He's the one who will see you to the end. And we see that this change can have generational impact. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Following Jesus, becoming a Christian can not only change your life, it can change the directory of your entire family. What what good would it do for your marriage if you're married, if you were following Jesus and loving your spouse like Christ loved the church? How good of a roommate could you be or friend could you be if you were a friend like Jesus who laid his life down for his friends? How good of a parent could you be if, if you were loving your children unconditionally like the Father has loved you? And what good news that those who are the most notorious sinners, you know, all of us are notorious sinners, anyone can come to faith in him. The way that you change is through repenting and giving your life to Jesus. That's step one. That's the starting point. For many of us, we come to church and we hear these things and say, I'm I'm just going to commit to be a better person. I hear about all the morals and all the good things I should do. But it's like trying to build a house without a foundation. The foundation is to trust Jesus to repent of your sins. If you've not done that, I'm going to be in the back after the service. Love to talk with you about how to do that today. The second way to change is to commit every area of life to Jesus. This, this is a process that begins to shape us and change us. And when Jesus saves us, it's like buying an old house that needs to be renovated. Je- Jesus owns the house, but he's taking his time room by room, changing it into the image that he wants it to be. And one day he's going to present it as beautiful and complete. It's changing us over time. And the way that this changes and shapes us happens through a culture that the church embodies. There's a gospel culture that the church has to embody. The local church is the community of grace given to us to change you to enjoy Jesus in every area of life. And he does this not through something magical, but he does it through the ordinary means of his word. This is where there's safety and time within the church community to be changed by the message of the gospel. The way that people come to faith, the way that people change, the way that you grow, there's no magic bullet. There's no four-step process. There's no gimmick. It's the word of God. The word of God is powerful. And gospel culture happens when the teaching of the word is cherished. Believing the word is cherished. And what happens in a culture that's embodying the gospel is that the gospel becomes precious. 
the good news of what Jesus has done for us never becomes old news. It becomes news that's at the very tip of our tongue. It becomes news that we are constantly humble about, constantly grateful for, constantly worshiping God for. And we, what happens when the gospel is precious is it becomes sufficient to change us. I read this story about an old minister in the Church of Scotland several hundred years ago named Charles Brown. And he, he quoted an eyewitness account of, of the power of God's grace in the church at this time. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, it was the simple reading of the word without preaching. Yet, such was the power upon the minds of the people, this is crazy, that it was a common thing as soon as the Bible was opened, after the preliminary services, and just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearer at the reading of the Bible. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. Then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive faces turned upon the reader. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. Would the word of God be precious to us? When the word of God is precious to us, when the gospel is precious, we begin to apply it to everything in our lives. At City on a Hill, we think of the gospel as the way that we keep score. How do we know that we're becoming the church that God wants us to be? It's not just numbers. It's not just budgets. I mean, those things are all important, but it's whose lives are being changed. How are people growing from one degree of holiness to another? Is our city being loved like Jesus has loved us? A gospel culture is when it's applied to the way that we address one another, the way that we treat each other. Do we love each other like Jesus has loved us? Do we reconcile with each other the way that Jesus has reconciled with us? An opportunity over the summer, uh, my wife Amy and I to sit down with some of our summer interns and work through some, some conflict. And they said that the way they'd seen conflict in their lives and their family was, man, if you have conflict with somebody, you just write them off. It's over. Relationship's done. You can get new friends. The gospel says that we can reconcile and make things new because we're a part of a new family. It's how we give counsel. Someone's laying out their issues and you, it's easy to just commiserate. Go, man, that really stinks. I'm sorry. And that's okay. But we go beyond that to point them to the grace they've received in Christ. And what we begin to do is apply it to every area of our lives. What would it look like for you to love like Jesus tomorrow at work? To react when you get that deadline that's way too soon. Instead of complaining to your coworkers, you just work faithfully unto the Lord and you address those things as they need to be addressed. What would it look like for you to display the gospel in your classroom or your lab tomorrow? What would it look like for the gospel to impact your friendships or your marriage or your kids or your roommates or, or, or where you even look for fulfillment? We begin to apply the gospel to everything. And as we do this together, we see God change us. So as we close, I just want to list a few next steps. Again, that, for, that first foundation is to, is to repent and trust Jesus. If you've not done that, I'm going to be standing in the back and walk you through how to turn your life and, over and give it to him. The next is if you've not been baptized, if you've not made that public profession that you're a follower of Jesus, man, scan that, scan that card that's in your seat. And if you go down to get involved, there's an opportunity to click get baptized. The third thing is where is Jesus not everything in your life? What's that one area in your life that you're kind of holding on to and saying, I want to be Lord over? How could Jesus change that? And then the last thing is, who can you share this with? Verse 41, we see that 
a logistical nightmare, but a beautiful outpouring of grace. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is good news that we can't keep to ourselves. Let's be faithful to be a church that's centered on the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray.